The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in today. I love to read memoirs. I love hearing about people's stories. And I've been spending some time with a fascinating story. It's a personal journey and a spiritual journey, a story of love, judgment, forgiveness, and redemption. Jan Phillips is the author of Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. At 18, Jan was a devoted Catholic who wanted nothing more than to serve God. And she entered the convent and religious life. Two years later, she was dismissed for a disposition unsuited to religious life with excessive and exclusive friendships. And she tells the story of her life with compassion, humor, and authenticity. And I'm really looking forward to talking with her and letting her share her story with all of you. So Jan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm really happy to be here with you today. Well, this is quite the story. Um, I'm still working my way through it. I'm almost, I'm almost to the end. I've been kind of binge reading it over the past two days. And it it's incredible. It's really an incredible story. I mean, what do you hope that people ultimately will take away from this after they finish reading it? Well, I think culturally speaking that we're kind of an, if she can, I can, um, group of People. I think our minds are shaped by that. If we hear a story of somebody who's done something ahead of us, gone through difficulties, engaged with conflicts, and survived it and succeeded, then the message to us is, well, if she can, I can. And this book is a huge compilation of failures and successes with a lot of ragged edges, a lot of conflict, a lot of drama. But, you know, it ends up with today, with me at this age being, you know, a modern day mystic. And so the reader, I hope, would be able to see through all the lines that I didn't do anything more than any other ordinary person can do except persevered. So I'm hoping... The message will be not just to LGBT people, not just to people associated with unity churches, but for any reader who picks it up, the message being, if I see something that's awry in my culture, I have the ability to change that. So it's really messaging from a social activist blanketed around 
LGBT and mysticism. So there's a lot going on in there. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. And we'll definitely get into that because I have a lot of questions. I mean, I think your story will resonate with a lot of people, not only just LGBTQ. I mean, I think one of the things that came out of it for me was to listen to your true north, to be an authentic person, and the perils that can come from not listening to that, not being who you really are, being true to yourself. And it took you a long time, as you describe in the book, to really come to that and, and embrace it. And that that's just such courage, you know, such strength to really be who you are in every way. You know, not not just some not just the obvious, but also your story resonated resonated with me personally. Just growing up, I grew up Catholic as well, and I I thought the nuns were magical too. Mm. Uh, luckily for me, uh, like talking to other people that have come up, you know, through that that tradition, some people have horrible memories and and horrible experiences. And I never had that as a youngster. It was always associated with good things, like going going with my father to get a donut at the rectory with the priests and mm. you know, Sister Dorothy, who was the the main one that ran like the CCD classes. I thought she was wonderful and, and beautiful. So I always had like this romantic idea as a youngster of what it was like to be in that life. And you you did it first as well, right? But then I did it first because I, all those things you name, I could name two, uh, the favorite parts, the sensual parts, the, the parts that are installed cellularly in our bodies because the Catholic institution has so much beauty and majesty to it. But also, how do you account for it being the reason I was suicidal at age 12? That's the other part of the duality. If the it power, hadn't, the power if it hadn't been for the Catholic Church's messaging about homosexuality, I would have been a happy-go-lucky 12-year-old who was about to enter into a puberty of the life of a lesbian. But instead, I wanted to kill myself. And you write that you knew in an early age that you were different and that it was frowned upon, like you're describing, but you wanting to enter the religious life, you felt that would be a sanctuary in a sense or where you'd be safe? Well, the source of that decision was because a nun saved my life. Because at age 12, when I'm suicidal, I'm in sixth grade. And I had a nun, Sister Helen Charles, who loved me and re and recognized that my fire was going out. I mean, if you got a kid who's sad and suicidal, it's kind of easy to recognize. So she pulled my mother aside. They started this new program called Positive Reinforcement on me and affirmed me as a great athlete, a great scholar, a great young kid. Everything I did, they applauded and praised. And there was a day midway through sixth grade where I remember waking up feeling like the butterfly instead of the sick caterpillar. 
So when I, and I knew that was because of Sister Helen Charles. And at that day, at age 12, I said, if nuns save kids' lives, that's what I'm going to be. So it wasn't because I wanted to live a, a vowed life of poverty, chastity, and obedience. It was only because I wanted to save kids who were in trouble like me. And you write beautifully about Sister Helen Charles. And was was she still there teaching for a long time, you know, after you made that decision? She was part of the convent that you were in? Oh, no, uh, not part of the convent I was in. A year after she had me, you know, they missioned these nuns at different locations all the time. So you never knew when your favorite nun would be sent away to another parish. So after sixth grade, she was sent away to Little Falls, New York. So we just wrote letters to each other. I went and visited her a couple times. You know, she was my first big mentor. Right. I didn't know really how to have a relationship with a nun because I was kind of a goofy tomboy kid. But it's almost like I had some kind of spiritual crush on her. I mean, she saved my life. I owed her something. Right, right. I could see where you would feel like that. It's as interesting as I was reading the book too. The time period that a lot of this was happening was really turbulent. I mean, for someone to enter the convent in 1967 and then to leave in 69, those were really turbulent years in our history. Yeah, they were the most turbulent years, I think. When we were in the convent, we had no access to the news. We barely heard about Robert Kennedy being killed, Martin Luther King being assassinated, right? It, it would come across like a news flash during the dinner. Sister, we've just heard Martin Luther King's been shot. Please keep him in your prayers. And that was it, because as postulants and novices, we were not exposed to the news because we were there to be shaped spiritually, so they cut all our ties to the secular world. Right. So, so I didn't know there was a sexual revolution going on. I didn't know everyone was smoking pot. I didn't know miniskirts had come onto the scene. I knew nothing. Yeah, I was trying to imagine the time that all of this was happening. So you go in at at age 18, 1967, you're you're sheltered. And then you come out in 1969, so many turbulent things happened that year. I mean, well, let, let's talk a little bit about that part of when you were asked to leave, because that I could feel just so much pain in what was going on with you at that time. When you were asked to leave the order, I mean, they pulled the rug out from under you, right? Your world was kind of crumbling, even though you, you must have been really unhappy as well. Well, I was not really unhappy because I simply did not obey the rules that they said. I mean, they figured out kind of early that I was gay. They kept an eye on me and they watched out their windows to see was she meeting with the same sister every day in recreation. Of course I was, because I was 18, falling in love, you know, trying to, exp feeling my sexuality, right? But 
I hadn't ever been in love before, but I had a, a novice who we were reading the same difficult book. We were reading a, theo, a, a theology, well, not really, it's written by a mystic paleontologist, um, Teilhard de Chardin. It was called The Divine Milieu, but he was a brilliant brainiac Jesuit, and it was really hard to follow that book. And she sat behind me in chapel, and I saw that she had that book. So I said, will you help me figure this, what these things mean in it? She goes, yeah. And so we met, you could recreate with novices every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So we met for lunch and went off by ourselves and had our divine milieu books and tried to figure out what the heck this priest is talking about. But the mess, and so the novice director and the postulant mistress are looking at us, going off, going off, and they're calculating these two will soon be in a carnal relationship, which was not the case because I wasn't falling in love with her physically. I was just expanding my mind with her. It was a whole new enterprise for me. So we got what's called in convent terms split. The nun calls you in and she goes, never, ever look at Sister Marie Kristen. I gave her a fake name in the book. Never, ever look at her when you see her walking down the halls. Keep custody of the eyes, which means only look at somebody's skirt down. Don't, don't look above somebody's knees. No talking with her. No meeting with her. And it was a terrible punishment because... You know, I had gotten used to, she was my thought partner. And simultaneously, I also was falling in love with her. And so when that edict came down and her novice director said the same thing to her, and I just refused to go along with it. I put a little note in her divine milieu that said, not supposed to see you anymore. I'm not going to go along with it. I'm coming to your room at 10 p.m. So that was verboten. You, you're in grand silence. You're not supposed to talk. Postulants aren't supposed to be with novices. You're never supposed to enter another person's bedroom. 10 o'clock at night, you're supposed to be asleep. I, I go out the back up the back stairway, she, her room was in the corner. I go into her room and we just cried together because it was so horrifically sad that they would misinterpret what we were up to and in some ways force us to be together in this context, which could lead to something carnal it didn't much it led to some kissing and holding, but I was way too emotionally immature to be a sexual being yet. I mean, 18 year old kids now are sexual all over the place, but back then I wouldn't have known even what to do, but hugging was, was really important. So practically every night we stayed together because during the day when they were watching us with their hawk eyes, we couldn't get away. I mean, we had a, a few places where we'd meet clandestinely. and That must have been so horrible kiss. to have to hide something that 
was beautiful. Who doesn't want that kind of intimacy? Who doesn't want that? Right. And to have to make that seem as something wrong or dirty or I can't even imagine how that must have felt. But you carried carried that on, both of you, for well over a year, right? Where yes. You were able to I get took, away with it. her vows. So she, yeah. So at least for nine months, because met her in September. Uh, she took her vows in August and then moved to another part of the house. So nearly a year. Wow. And I was uh, interested in the fact that you were taking a deep dive into Tilhard de Chardin because a lot of other teachers and spiritual authors and people that have worked with always mention him as a big influence in his writings and his teachings. And especially there's a famous quote that's always attributed to him that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. Yeah. His writings really influenced you. Totally. Well, because he was so ahead of his time, nothing he ever wrote was published in his lifetime because the Jesuits were afraid of what he was saying. So he was banished to China for like 12 years and they just silenced him. But because he was talking about a new cosmology, he was giving us a new way to look at God, not through necessarily Trinitarian eyes, but as a creative unfolding verb, as you know, he, he, he would speak of cosmogenesis. It's a continuing happening, right? And he helped us place ourselves in that because one idea that he had was the circular nature of spirit where it constantly moves from the divinization of matter to the materialization of the divine. And it's just one big thing. It's like energy is either a wave or a particle. When it's a wave, it's God. When it's a particle, it's us. Right. Isn't that fascinating that, and he was alive when, in the 17, 1800s? No, no, no. In the 1940s, he was writing, 1930s, 40s, 50s. Okay. So a lot of the things that they're talking about now, as far as quantum physics and things like that, were things that he was bringing up in a spiritual lens back in the 1940s. I think that's interesting. Yeah. He's way ahead of his time. Way ahead of his time, for sure. So at that point, you're you know, definitely hiding who, who you are, who you really are inside. And so at the, at the point they asked you to leave, was it It was a direct result of that relationship that you were describing that they asked you to leave at that point? I think it was a direct result of the second relationship, that they watched me do it again and saw that I was disobedient. And I was full of bliss in there because the formula for bliss for me is... a. It's a day of equal parts of solitude and community and prayer and service. And that's how our lives were laid out for us. We worked really hard physically as novices, you know, on our hands and knees, scrubbing the marble floors with pencil erasers and 
wash. I had the dishwasher. This was a mother house with 400 some sisters in it. So three meals a day, there's a lot of work. And the novices basically did the work of the house. And so that was a formula that caused me to be in bliss most of the time because of so much time devoted to meditation and prayer and walking and singing. I remember asking my novice director, could we have folk masses? She goes, oh, no, we can't have folk masses. I'm saying, why not? Other people are. It would be way too expensive for us to buy the music. And I said, well, how about if I write the music? Well, if you write the music, then, of course, we could have folk masses. So then I started writing music then. So you could see what about that life was seductive and alluring and full of joy for me. And no men around, no mussy, fussy families around, just the the loving, prayerful women and all the old sisters, all us, the young sisters. I mean, there was no diversity racially or culturally, but there was great diversity inside in our interior lives. And right. so I was very, very happy, and I never expected in a million years that they would kick me out. In fact, um, chap- they have a thing called chapter, which is like the governing body of leaders. And when chapter comes together, they make decisions about who's going to stay. And I remember novices all around me being all wringing their hands, going, oh, I'm so afraid chapters next week, and I'm going to get they were going to send me home. And I go, just relax. No one's going to send us home. Are you kidding? They need us here. Right. You're the labor force. Yeah, we were the labor force. But so, and I never expected they would do it to me. I mean, I knew I'd been called into the office a number of times, but I got away with so much they didn't even know about. But the day came, June 6th, I'm, I'm in the kitchen. It's after dinner. I'm at the kitchen at the uh, huge, massive dishwashing machine when my novice director comes and beckons me with her little finger, follow me, sister. I followed her down the back stairs all the way down the basement hallway into this little parlor. I had no idea. I thought, I wonder if she wants me to move some furniture. That's what I was thinking. She says, sit down, sister. She asked me, you know why we're here, don't you? And I just, I had no idea why we were there. I finally said, well, yeah, I guess so, because I didn't know what else to say. She says, chapters decided you're not to continue your novitiate. And something happened in my body some it was a trauma and so my body kind of closed down she left the room to go get my the dress that i entered in so i could change my clothes and i slid off the chair and just fell on the floor and started shaking and trembling because you know i never had a plan b I was happy there. I, I didn't say, oh, I'll be a pharmacist if this doesn't work or, oh, you know, 
I didn't know what to do. Since I was 12, I was going to be a nun. Now they're sending me home. So finally, I got myself together enough to get back in the chair because she couldn't just find me in a on the floor. So she, she takes my veil. She sends me down to the restroom to change my clothes. And I was just numb. I had... I. I was so numb. I could barely talk except I I said, what am I supposed to tell my parents? She says, your parents will be here in a half an hour. I said, what am I supposed to tell them? And that's when she said, just tell them you don't have a religious disposition. So she never used the words homosexual. The word gay wasn't even in the lexicon at that time. She never said anything about relationships. Because I'm assuming when I said, yeah, I guess I know why I'm here, she thought I had that figured out. So there was no formal, here's the letter, here's your letter of being fired. There was nothing like that. So I had no real closure, which is why it took me 20 years to get over it. And I was just reading that part in the book where you went back after all this time and other life experiences that you had to find out the real reason. And she, that's what she wrote was that you were unsuited to religious life with excessive and exclusive friendships. Yes. I just think that's such an interesting definition. Yeah. They they couldn't even say the words, right? It it was implied. Excessive, exclusive. What? Yeah. (laughs) What? Me? I've been excessive all my life, but exclusive never. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I thought that was that was so interesting. But but still I could feel the pain in what you were writing about in being thrown out of all that you knew and were comfortable with into a situation where like you said you had no experience, there wasn't a lot of call for someone who could pray a lot and maybe play a lot of guitar or, I mean, right. I can't imagine the, I had the no job, job skills, t- the job title of, Hmm, well, what hmm. can I do? What can I do with these skills? You know? Right. So you were kind of thrust into that situation to totally remake your life. And I've read this in other accounts of people that have been in the situation of leaving a, a religious order that you're kind of just given like, here's your bag, almost like they, when they, release you from prison, here's your bag of clothes and, and good luck, you know, and you're like kind of pushed out into the water, right? Into the deep end. I didn't have a bag of clothes. I had that one dress, (laughs) minus my bail. And you only had a, a half an hour to kind of get it together to even tell your parents what, what was going on or, or what was the reasoning. We're going to take a short break and come back and talk a little bit more about Jan Phillips' experience and what happened after she left the religious order. And there's, there's a lot more. It's a really interesting story and, and just very brave, and you're very authentic in writing this. The book is still on fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic, available right now if you'd like to check it out. I'm Diane Ray, and we'll be right back in just a minute. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further 
allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, the Diane Ray Show. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. I'm continuing my conversation here with Jan Phillips, talking about her memoir, Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. And in the past uh, segment, or the last segment, we were talking about the actual moment where you were asked to leave, you were unsuited, uh, not not suitable for religious life. You had excessive and exclusive friendships and you're thrust out there. So we were talking a little bit about the actual time that this was happening. 1969, you're out in the world. So now, like you describe in the book, you were used to two hours of meditation with incense and quiet time. And now, you know, you're bombarded with Led Zeppelin and Iron Butterfly and mini skirts and people smoking pot. And like, I mean, how was that the first few months that you were out? How did you cope with that? It was horrific. I tried to tell my mom that I needed, whenever I'm in my bedroom and the door is closed, that means don't come in because I'm in meditation or prayer. Oh, okay. But she never remembered that. So whenever the phone rings for me, she just burst right in my room. She didn't understand the concept of prayer in the day or meditation in the day. So I had to leave, but I got kicked out in June and I left by September to drive to California because it just was a terrible thing to be running into old friends in my town of Syracuse and they're all laughing. Oh, we knew you'd hate it in there. Glad you left. And they, nobody ever got it right, and nobody could see how tortured I was to not have the life I felt I belonged to and was destined for. No one understood. They weren't giving you any any solace, any understanding of what you what you went through, which I, just sounds so painful. And I also wanted to mention there was an important figure in in the book who was a big influence. Sister Roberta Joseph, whose real name was Margaret, who was a a teacher that you looked up to, and then who also you later reconnected with. And and you write in the book that she was really influential as far as her activism. And I mean, she walked in Selma with Martin Luther King. I mean, that's, that's a pretty incredible experience. Yes, it was. So I, I'm a freshman in high school, and she leaves for a few days to go to Selma. She comes back. There's still red clay dirt on the bottom of her habit and on the soles of her shoes, right? She just went there, walked, came home, taught. But she modeled for us social activism, how to do it, how to not be afraid 
how to speak out. I mean, she'd always talk about unions and she just talked about kind of progressive issues to us in a way. She's the only one that ever invited us to talk about what we were thinking because every other nun was trying to have us, everybody's trying to tell us how to think, what to think. She's trying to coach us how to think. And she's the only one that ever asked, what were we thinking? So she became a major force in my life and discouraged me from going into the convent because she herself was becoming agnostic in those years in the 1960s. And she was considering leaving the community. So when I approached her to say, I want you to be my sponsor when I go into the convent, which means she would have to concur that it was a good idea. She goes, I refuse to. That would be the worst thing that ever happened to you. You won't survive it. They'll break your spirit. And I couldn't understand what she was talking about, but she was speaking truth way before the fact. So when I was in the convent for two years, she was doing graduate work at the University of Chicago. She's getting her master's in English, something literature. And I never saw her during those two years, but my novice director contacted her the day I was dismissed to let her know that we're sending Jan Phillips home on Friday night. And Margaret's graduation from the University of Chicago was that Saturday. And what she did was instead of going to her graduation, she got on a Greyhound bus and traveled like, I don't know, 17 hours in order to to reach me because she knew I'd be in a state of chaos. So we had our first powwow that very first weekend. I was dismissed. And then because she was done with her grad work, she started teaching at the College of St. Rose in Albany, right down the road from our mother house. It was Joseph. It was a community, our college, the Sisters of St. Joseph. So she was teaching there. And that's when I went to visit her and we reconnected and became lovers. And she was a major influence in your life. I mean, even you you described this relationship going until the end of her life. Yes. Um, we lived together for about five years. We went through Europe together. She cultured me because I just had no culture. I knew nothing, but she, I mean, she was a constant reader, a, a consumer of all news. She was just my mentor in life. But, you know, that's what she gave to me. She was 16 years older than me. And what I gave to her, you know, I'll never know because we didn't really articulate those things. But my vibe, my vivaciousness and my willingness to go anywhere, do anything, learn anything. I mean, we were a good team. But, right, I'm not, I was in the early stages of my life then. So to be in a relationship for five years was a long time. And I had other, how do they call it? Things to soul. Right. 
whatever that <laughs> word is, other relationships to have. I'm destined to be with many people in this life. So we stopped living together and she moved and got other jobs, but I always saw her every year because I always went back to Syracuse every year where my family was, and then I would make a trek to see her. So yeah, we maintain our relationship. She just and she died sounded, two years ago. She sounded like such a, a beautiful person uh, that I really know. came across in, in the in the story and how important that, that she was to you. What an important influence. And it must have been so difficult just talking, a, shifting a little to your family. So was it around this time? I mean, after you had had, you know, the long-term relationship uh, five years with Margaret, but then finally you felt after having some life experience brave enough to really tell your your family or your mother what was going on, and that was not well-received at all. Oh, horrors. That was terrible because my dad had a bad heart, and my, mom's resp- my mom was becoming a charismatic Catholic, which just means be- becoming more of a bib a biblically oriented Catholic and taking literal phrases out of that book. And for some reason, how it all got conflated in her mind is God hates me now. I'm a terrible sinner. And I've, and I've, if I get anywhere my near my father and tell him he's going to have a heart attack. And then she says, it'll be all your fault. So she was highly activated and motivated to keep me away from my father. Right, so I never did tell him. God forbid that he'd keel over from a heart attack, which would be your fault. Yes, so, my fault. Totally. Yeah. How would you? I how would my you father live with yourself? So it's just so horrible the things that people are told, and the guilt and pain that's put upon them. So for your your father's natural life, his whole life, he never really knew who you were. Authentically. She said to me, "He knows in his own way." He knows in his own way, because I my defense was, Mom, this is my dad. I want to have a relationship with him. I want him to know who I really am. I finally, when I came out, like in 72 or 71, whatever, officially understood and proclaimed who I am, I said, I want him to know that because it makes me joyful to be able to have a complete understanding of myself and not feel bad about who I am. But she just was convinced that he wouldn't be able to accommodate that. So I never told him. That's so, I can't even imagine that that's so horrible. How do you reconcile now? Like I can see where you're a deeply spiritual person and, and want a close relationship with God and people that believe that God is that judgmental that he would hate someone for who they love. How did you reconcile that to where you are today? I mean, do you still feel a close connection with, with God and that he's, isn't that judgmental being in the sky? Oh my heavens. No, I'm way beyond that. But well, you know, the, the, the last nail in the coffin for me vis-a-vis the church was right shortly after I moved to California, I start. I went to the local parish and started leading, teaching guitar lessons to teens, and we would do folk masses for, for the parish. 
And so that felt like I still had a life of spirit and service and it felt consistent with who I was. But I went one day to the, I went to confession. I don't know why it's kind of unlike me, but because I was just coming into my own as, as a self proclaimed lesbian. So I went into the confessional and I said to the priest, I'm just, you know, I'm kind of happy because I finally figured out I'm gay and there's a place for me. And he said, I refuse to give you absolution if you refuse to stop being gay. He was an Irish priest, right? Big brogue. And it so confused me because not getting absolution I mean, I still believed in the church and I believed in purgatory and I believed in all those things, sin and a priest helps you get rid of them, all that. So, and I'm living with the the novice who was the second sister I fell in love with, whose name in the book is Rosie. And I came home and said to her, I can't get absolution because of being gay. And it was a serious upset to both of us. And we went through a period of time where we said, maybe we should try and not be. And we tried that. I think we, we, I think we even went to Camp Pendleton one night and went to the officer's club and picked up a couple Marines and tried to have dates with them. But it never worked. You know, it's like a donkey trying to be a unicorn. It, it does not work. So. Um, when I went back again to the confessional and told the priest, I'm, I'm, I'm gay and I'm not going to not be that because there isn't any, it's like you ask me to change my eyes from blue to brown on it's impossible chore. And he says, well, then no absolution for you. And from now on, I don't want to see you in my church. And I don't want you teaching those kids or doing folk mass. I was so surprised because I thought they couldn't see through those screens. But man, he knew exactly where I was. So there I am, officially kind of excommunicated. Kicked out. And that was the end of my relationship with the Catholic Church. Well, the interesting part, too, of kind of a postscript of that story was that Rosie, it, it was so... Un, I guess she just couldn't wrap her head around any of that or the, the horror and fear of being not absolved. She ended up marrying a man and moving back to New York yes. and having a relationship. I mean, would, did you ever find out? I wondered, like, whatever happened to her? Did she just live a life of maybe some happiness and quiet desperation? Or No, I think she's probably a non-lesbian who just fell in love with me. And that happens often, right? People who fall in love with souls and not bodies. And sometimes it so happens that you fall in love with somebody of your own sex, even though you don't think of yourself as lesbian or gay. I've known a few women like that. Even my last partner had been with men in her life. And I think for Rosie, she was not gay. And I think she had internal struggles with being gay 
that she never wanted to hold hands in public. We never, we lived with three other women in our house on the beach. We never ever used the words relationship, gay, lesbian, none of that. Because I recognized she was afraid of it. We were hidden, closeted. Right. That's interesting that she was, I guess, a, someone who just fell in love with you as a person. You happened to be the same gender, but she didn't identify as being gay. Yes. Right. That's, so that's interesting. She's happily married is what I, I don't know. I haven't seen her in 40 years. Right. I think <laughs> the postscript of that. Happily married. Lived happily ever after as right. a straight woman. Well, we hope, we hope we she hope. has some happiness in life. I was watching this uh, interesting documentary. I don't know if you've seen it about conversion therapy and the damage it does. And it just seems like there's so much pain for people that are brought up in religious traditions, um, you know, Catholicism, Mormonism, I don't know, I guess, every, I guess every kind of kind of ism and people really suffer in, in that, like you said, you felt that you were close to suicide at such a young age. But the message you would tell those people is that that isn't a loving God. That isn't, there is a God that exists that is not going to punish you for those things. I mean, I just think it's so horrible. But if you ever see this, it's on Netflix. I forget the name of it, but just to try to force people, you know, to be a certain way and they're not. Everybody knows that that's a failure. It's, that's a therapeutic approach to change that she has no chance of working because every gay person knows there's no one doing this. But I don't know, this the story of me getting back to anything sacred, any relationship with divinity, that's a very long, I mean, you have to get to the end of the book to see what makes a mystic anyway. Because I I am totally not religious. It's so ironic that most of my work, you know, I'm a facilitator of spiritual intelligence and evolution. And most of my work is with nuns. And it's I get hired by Catholic retreat centers who and it's kind of hush hush, don't let the bishop know, right? Because sometimes bishops will say to them, like in Tucson, I was hired to do a gig, and then the bishop caught wind, and he forbade them to have me come. So it's kind of curious that it ends up somebody who had that experience at the hands of the church ends up being a spiritual facilitator of of uh, evolutionary spiritual growth. But that's just how the cards fell because I'm a cellular Catholic and I, you know, I know how the Catholic church served me. I know how it didn't serve me. And so my spiritual practice has nothing to do with anything Catholic, but every day I could say I spend about an hour in communion with that force that I think of as divinity in my life. And it's in my lungs and it's the air I breathe. I'm not seeking. I'm not a seeker. It's like, does a fish look for water? I'm not looking. I'm breathing it. I'm, right. I'm 
I'm the word made flesh of it, just like you are. Well, I want to get to that part where you're a mystic. I haven't read that part yet in the book, about three quarters of the way through. But what would be your definition of mystic? To me, it's somebody who just has an unmediated relationship with the invisible mysteries, right? Unmediated meaning you don't go to church to have it. You don't get your spiritual director to have it. You have it in solitude, in your own silence, in front of your own candles, and whatever you set up is your altar, right? So there's certain accoutrements for me that go into it right? And my altar every day, I have two candles used to just be one, but now there's two. One seems to represent masculine and feminine. I have, you know, I have a chalice for the water. I have my candles for the fire. I have a hawk feather for air. I have little bears, polar bears and iconic grizzly bears, little clay things for earth. And I'm just aware that the natural world is where I come from. I don't think I was planted here from heaven, but there's a part of me that feels eternal and infinite, that which we think of as our soul. So in my morning prayers, I I mean, I have two old-fashioned rote prayers that I say, but basically it's just a stillness wherein I feel grateful for the privilege of having an invisible dance partner who's co-creating my life with me. I can do only so much. I love that definition. And I would like to say that I am taking those steps to be a mystic. Now that you, now you've given it a definition for me because I thought that I was not able to be that that it's only other people that can be a mystic, but you just described what I do all the time. Yeah, so, see? Yeah, you gave me a name for it, which is great, uh, because now I can think of myself in those terms. Although I'm still I'm still working on having that direct communication. Yeah. And do you get that just being quiet and getting in that space and on a consistent basis? Is that the best way to kind of open those doors? Yes, it's the only way to open those doors. Settling down, shutting up, and asking. Okay, it's like taking the phone call. You go, hello. There, you know, you have to go, hello. Is anybody there? I'm ready. Right. I'm listening. It's <gasps> like Emily Dickinson said, the only news I get is bulletins all day from immortality. That's how she expressed it right? So some days, like today, I didn't get any bulletins. And I said, hey, I'm waiting for my marching orders. It sounds to me like you're saying rest and nothing comes. So I go, all right, rest it is, right? I've just finished this huge assignment of the memoir. I just canceled my book tour because of COVID. And so in those, in my morning prayers and meditation, it's always where, okay, here's the title of your next book. All right. Here's the chord progression for your next song. It's in that holy, sacred opening space that I receive my news about how to move my body through the day. I like that. That's given me some 
some hope <laughs> and some help. Thank you for sharing that because I've been feeling like that voice is not speaking to me and it's gone and maybe it's telling me to rest. So maybe that's the message I should be tuning into because I ask all the time, tell me what to do. Is this the right thing to do? Give me an answer. And then when I, I get angry, if I don't hear anything. Well, that's when you pull out your pendulum and ask a yes or no question. Put your pendulum <laughs> over your palm. <laughs> I have I have different kinds of cards that I, I do those things too, where I'll try to, I'll get quiet and go, okay, give me a message. And I have gotten pretty clear messages that way where it'll say persistence, persistence. I'll get the same message over and over. So I, I, I like that on the road to being a mystic. I think I'm, I'm that it takes that. some time. It takes some proof of of commitment. Like on day one, like I've been doing this since 1990. On day one, well, you can read in the book, on day one, an amazing thing did happen to me. But I'm not saying that's the case generally, because on day four, nothing, right? It's just right. like radio silence. So there's no way of knowing because this is Holy Spirit. This is create. This is creation expanding, right? It's this on is, its own time, right? It's, we can't. It's like infinity. It. It's a light year. It's not a second hand. So who knows? But I'm not. I don't have a day where I go, dang, it didn't work. Right. Every day <laughs> is like, hey, okay. But I always have my journal there, and today when I wasn't getting any message and said, okay, I'm assuming this means rest, then I just picked up my journal and wrote a poem to be in communion with that, right? Mother, father, that absolute mystery, that. Right. So, so many, I talk on those days. So many great lessons in the book. And I really hope people give this a read and learn from your experience. And what's the best way that people could get in touch with you if they had questions or comments? Just go to janphillips.com and sign up for my um, newsletter because every Sunday I send out a bulletins from immortality passage. So every Sunday you get in your email box, some little inspiring thing for me. But you can always reach me by my email on my website. I get emails from people all the time. Well, I'm going to sign up for that newsletter immediately. Okay, And good. send people over there, janphillips.com. And pick up the book, Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. I loved it. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Hey, thanks for this fun thing. It was great. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation, and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. 
I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.